Welcome to Let's Talk About Development, a podcast by HCRI, a youth-led think tank dedicated to policy research and facilitating debate in the field of human development. On each episode of Let's Talk About Development, we talk to researchers and practitioners about development issues and how we can work together to create social change. In this episode, we'll be talking about the recent rise in anti-Asian hate crime and for our guest speakers today, we have Amy Zhang, Jillian Montilla and Andrea Wong, who are joining us, who are affiliated with the association at Sciences Po called Pornu. And I'll let them introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Jillian Montilla. I am a master's student in human rights and humanitarian action. I am also a member of Pornu, an anti-racism collective um, advocating for an actively anti-racist Sciences Po. Hi, I'm Andrea Wong, and I'm in my second year of a master's at Sciences Po, and I'm involved with Pornu. Hi, everybody. My name is Amy Zhang. I'm doing a double master's at Sciences Po with Peking University in international security. I'm in my second year right now, so I'm in the year with Peking University, but due to the coronavirus, I'm stuck in Paris and doing class online. Um, I'm not affiliated with any um, organizations in Sciences Po, but I had this great opportunity when Jill approached me, so I'm very, very happy to be here. Great, thank you so much for joining. The first question, um, what is your reaction to the current rise in anti-Asian hate that we are witnessing across the globe? So I had a really difficult time reacting to everything that was happening. And um, everything that was happening kind of had a very um, slow progression into uh, what happened in Atlanta. And I, I knew that I was consciously and intentionally shutting it off. Like I would skip past this when I saw it on my timeline, skip past it when I saw it on my feed. I just could not engage with the situation whatsoever. And I think it took me almost like maybe two weeks after the Atlanta shooting for me to really just just even process what happened because I just felt what's the point in mourning? What's the point in getting upset? Because I felt so silenced. I felt defeated before I even put up a fight. And, and maybe, maybe it's because I've been putting up a fight or putting up a front my entire life and nobody's noticed, nobody's come to my aid, nobody's, you know, reached out at hand and I just felt so invisible, unheard. And it was almost like, do I even exist? Who, who am I? Do I exist? Do I even matter? Do I have to just go living like this? Like, like just a, just kind of like a side, side piece to this whole narrative. And I was just, I was just so defeated and just broken by it. And I didn't know, didn't even know how to put into words. So I was really, really thankful when Jill and Andrea approached me to just put up, to just have a talking space, a safe space to just let everybody, you know, talk about their feelings, whatever they are, and just process it as a community as we go along. And I think that really helped me to just vocalize and put everything into perspective. And it also made me feel like I do exist. There are people who feel the way I feel in a way that is so bottled up and so suppressed. So. It, it's complicated. There's no one word answer. It's just, it's just it feels like everything that I've lived through is coming into a peak moment where it's just going to fall apart. And I think that's probably the trigger 
for change. And I'm really excited for what this will, you know, launch into. Yeah, I completely agree with the, this very complicated, contradicting, confusing mix of feelings that was like born out of the, the Atlanta shootings. I remember like when I woke up and I saw a bunch of push notifications from Reuters BBC on, on this and my stomach sank and I just felt numb the entire day. And I had a jam packed day to go do groceries and go outside and I could not leave my apartment. And I didn't leave my apartment for like two or three days. And when I actually had to go out to buy more food, a man started yelling things at me on the street, like go back to your country and things like this. And I couldn't, I didn't know how it made, I just felt numb at that point. And I just went home and I called my mom because <laughs> that's what you do when you're sad and you have uh, fortunate enough to have a good relationship with your mother. And I called her and in the words exchanged with my mother after the shootings, we said for a long time as Asians, at least we got to walk away alive from the racism we experienced. But now even getting yelled at on the streets, which I used to be able to just brush off like nothing. I don't know if they're going to follow me. I don't know if they're going to watch where I'm going next. It's a different kind of threats and immediacy to speak out against the racism that we've experienced because for a long time, people it's find it very difficult to understand anti-Asian racism simply because we don't talk about it. And also because maybe we feel illegitimate getting to claim the experience of racism because we haven't experienced it like black populations have, that we haven't suffered enough to be able to claim it. But truly it's like, our silence hasn't helped us, hasn't saved us, hasn't made us any safer. And so it's really, I think in the way that like the community is coming together, it's giving us a way forward to be able to begin dismantling the anti-Asian sentiment that we even have within ourselves. And yet for me, I just felt utter disgust and um, anger when I heard about the shootings in Atlanta and also all of the anti-Asian hate that's been going on, actually seeing these really visceral um, videos of elderly people get attacked on the streets. Um, any kind of unsolicited attack on a person would, you know, warrant a reaction of, you know, disgust and anger, but like a racially motivated attack um, for me was an expression of hate against a whole community or a group of people and that's what I found so insidious about it is that the victim could have been anyone of that like, community or group that's being targeted so that was so it made me feel scared like there was a lot of fear for me uh like Jill said I think what I there's something I definitely relate to that like I don't always feel safe walking in the streets or being out in public like I, I don't know when someone could, you know, turn around and yell things at me, um, mark me out for the way that I look. And with this rise in anti-Asian hate that we're seeing it, it made me think it could be me, it could be any one of my family members or any one of my Asian friends who end up being the victim of this hate and I remember on that day when the news broke my sister messaged me and um, she was very anxious for me uh, because I am actually alone now in Paris but she 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 was like well I've I've just ordered these um, 
rape alarms. Um, we're going to, I'm going to send them to everyone in our family. A mother will have one, our dad, um, uncles, aunts. I just want to make sure that everybody gets one so that they can keep it on them when they're on the streets and so they can have this extra kind of layer of safety. But I suppose it's that kind of reaction, the fear of it, that it could be anyone, someone you love and it could be you as well. That's how I, what I felt immediately after it. It's awful that those steps have had to be taken. Um, and it's obviously something that you've kind of all expressed that you've felt and experienced throughout your lives. But we're, I mean, for a lot of people, we're only just kind of seeing the, the pinnacle of it, as you say. What are the origins of this? Why do you think it's happening now? Off the bat, we can obviously talk about the rhetoric employed to shift blame for the number of lives lost and the economic uh, downturn exhibited by presidents like Trump. Kung flu, China virus, things like that. But we can't look at the shooting or the attacks on Asians in a vacuum. When you look at the shooting, you cannot ignore the dimension of fetishization that was born out of a racist sexism that existed long before the murder was even born. Most anti-Asian hate crimes have been shown to be targeted against Asian women. And why is that? So when we delve into this history of Western imperialism in Asia, perpetuated through rape and war, we start to understand. We begin to develop the lens that can explain the source of the inequality and in targeting on the Asian diaspora today. The exploitation, the hypersexualization, the mail order bribe phenomenon, cyber trafficking of young children. We see that the Atlanta shooting and the violence that accompanies it is manifest of the same systems of domination and the same assumption of our submission. And the thing is, is that again, we get for the longest time, we got to walk away alive from it. We found safety in being a silent minority with our proximity to the supreming, the, the, the supremacist class. And it's just heartbreaking to see that it took something like this for us to realize that we were never safe. And obviously you're not all from the US, although the events that are happening at the moment, a lot of it seems to be coming from there. Do you think this wave is concentrated only in the US or do you think it's phenomena that we're experiencing everywhere. So for me, I'm from London, the UK. What I've seen and what I think is so scary is that this rhetoric of the coronavirus being distinctly Chinese and the racialization of it has its presence in the UK as well. Um, you know, what's happening in the US definitely isn't isolated. I think I read somewhere that we've seen 300% increase in anti-Asian hate crimes in the UK and we've also seen these attacks that uh, after the first wave of the virus it, it, there was an incident with the 65 year old Chinese retiree named Wang who was attacked in North London and he had a bone fracture which left him permanently disabled um, and of course there was a case of this Singaporean student, Jonathan Mock, who was attacked on Oxford Street. He needed facial reconstruction surgery. And I think this was the one that kind of shocked me the most, like hit home more because 
it's sort of like a place I go to all the time. And like I was saying, it it really drove home the idea that it could have the attacks that discriminate against Asian, but indiscriminate amongst us. So it really very well could have been me. It could have been any one of my friends either as well. So it's definitely not an isolated case what's happening in the US. Piggybacking off of that, um, I've only been in France for about two years, but I know that associations like uh, Association des Gens Chinois de France, uh, the Association of Young Chinese in France, have been very active in speaking out against anti-Asian hate. But I can speak from a more limited sphere of experience um, doing my work with Ponu. And so in preparing and compiling um, Ponu anti-racism report, we got I, would, I was very surprised to see how many instances of racism was, were experienced amongst Chinese, Southeast Asian, South Asian students at um, the hands and doing of widely French professors. Asian students getting called Chang, for example, when that's not their name, equating language fluency with intelligence, insisting Asian students were related, even though they have explicitly said that they were not. A professor saying that, I hope you don't have corona to a Chinese student, and also not included in the report. I've had friends that were Asian that also experienced sexual violence that was born out of an intersecting discrimination of being both Asian and the assumption of being submissive and doing things that other groups of women wouldn't do and also being a woman. And so the thing is, is like these, these, the legacies of imperialism, the legacies of domination in these countries, it's born and it's, it's omnipresent, I feel like. And I'm sure that um, being born and raised in, in France that are Asian as well will probably echo this. In terms of how Asian people feel as a community, what has this led to? Is there like a community feeling amongst everybody? Does everybody feel unsafe? Does everybody feel like they're getting the blame for these things that obviously have nothing to do with them? I think this is where things get really, really complicated because um, apart from feeling lost, unable to speak out and discuss and fear for their lives, the Asian community or specifically Asian Pacific Islanders were so diverse, not just in our um, inherent nationalities, our ethnicities, but also in the diaspora experience versus um, Asians who actually grew up in Asia. So there's so many different perspectives and lives that there's not solidarity in the community vis-a-vis um, -vis like white, white acceptance, um, who we are as Asians and what we feel is supposed to be Asian-ness and how we come to terms with this idea of Asian-ness. There's this, there's this idea and of like, are we the right type of Asian? Are we, how, how close to we are, as Jill said earlier, to like being accepted in a white system? How are we the right type of Asian? Like I, we've heard so many stories of like people being harassed up to that point of the Atlantis shootings saying like, oh, they just harassed me. They said ching chang chong, but I'm not even Chinese or like, I'm not even that fob. I don't even eat Asian food. You know, there's this part of self-denial that was so predominant in that progression throughout this past year up until the point of Atlanta shootings, when people are harassing elders, not in a violent way, just in a very disrespectful way, people in the Asian community, most of us kind of laughed it off or just 
kind of like ignored and said like, this is like a singular case. Because I think, as Jill said earlier, we felt safe in our silence in, in this like ability to kind of, you know, this, is a, this is a transgender term, but it's almost like a passing privilege that we have as a model minority. And so we think we find that to be safe, but Atlanta shootings really prove that we were never safe. And so now we we're faced with this like splinter between our community. And it's like what the racism that we received, was it real enough? Was can it can we compare that kind of racism with the racism that the black community um, perceived uh, receives? How it's just a lot of questions we're confronted with us as a community, us as individuals, and a lack of consolidarity amongst us all. I guess it comes back to this issue of what people think racism is, and is it a physical attack, or is it this, or is it microaggressions that you experience every single day? And also, as you say, Asians aren't a monolith. It's such a diverse group. I can understand why it's difficult to, you know, even feel representative of that group. And I think just your personal experiences and personal reflections are so valid. So what I wanted to ask as well was about what the institutional or political response has been to this, if there has been any, and if so, has it been effective? Do you feel like there is a recognition of this? Speak about the UK, most recently with the report that came out this week uh, from the government's commission on race and ethnicity ethnic disparities. The report that's come out has it's been shockingly inadequate and not only that it's been described by a writer in this article that I read as a masterclass in gaslighting. Uh, so it essentially finds that the UK is no longer institutionally racist. It emphasizes that the academic achievements of many children from um, minority ethnic backgrounds do as well or better than the white peers but doesn't this doesn't take away from the fact effect of institutional racism it 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 is yeah it's a it was a huge kind of blow and not only that I think within the established establishment as well um language that UK politicians use in government way that um, Chinese people are being spoken about. Um, there are often jokes made at their expense. I quote them here because uh, they contain profanities, but this kind of conflation of like, the evilness of the Chinese Communist Party from their perspective and just Asian people in general, as we've already mentioned, that racialization of the coronavirus is all part of the rhetoric of politicians. And I think in this respect, the fact that there's one, this denial of institutional racism by the government, it's clear that more needs to be done. And in a way, it feels difficult to and trust the authorities, especially they read in the first wave of the COVID outbreak. Um, Met Police were actually, uh, the officers were recording the ethnic appearance of victims as 
oriental, which is a highly derogative term. So if in these institutions, there's that perpetuation of racist attitudes and language, then it would take a lot more to kind of move that forward. And I'm glad that light, be, light is being shed on it now, but at the minute, I don't think there had been a sort of reaction to this yet. I think it's going to take a lot more to change. Um, I'm from Canada, so I can only speak about my experiences in specifically Ontario. A lot of API are actually in politics, but most of them are representative of the conservative parties. And these representatives are the few Asians um, that have that have made it really good. And they've you know transferred a lot of wealth from back home to here. So they're 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 really well off, which is really not representative of most of the Asian community in Ontario. And and I think it's also unfair that the representation is so screwed, screwed to the to the right, because um, these people use conservative um, values to really pull in the Asian community. And I can't again regarding the co complexity and the diversity of the Asian community. I can't speak for the entire community, but most of the Asian traditions are conservative in nature. You know, we really value the family. We really value safety and just, just everyday working life. And conservatives like to just spin this story that liberals are out there to, you know, destroy this safety, this, this equilibrium. And so a lot of the focus is like on legalization of weed and things like that. And it, kind of triggers the fear of Asian community of ru ruining their businesses, um, destroying public health, public, public safety, I mean. And it really doesn't represent the real faucet of what the, the, the right focus is on, which is really just those who are more well off than the you know, normal working class. And unfortunately, many of our parents and in the older generations, they cannot speak English and they're not able to really be informed. So all they have is this like representative of like a political party, which they feel like they could trust. And thus they, they believe them. And then they kind of spread this idea amongst themselves. And this kind of little wave just keeps going and going. And, and it takes them, uh, for the Conservative Party to win, to set laws that take away lots of the welfare that these the, the Asian community depends on, for example, like childcare, family welfare, and for low-income families, and a lot of the a lot of the more integrated Asian families they'll realize this, but it's not the case for most times. I mean, I've had personally lots of people come over to my house and say, could you sign this petition? But, but nobody can read this petition or understand what it means. And they're just making these families, these elderly sign these petitions, which is you know, borderline not legal. And I think that's something that has to be touched upon as well. Why, why are 
why are we trying to pull in the interest like that? Why, why isn't there more representation for, or leadership within like our communities or just more integration within like different communities so that we can like actually be educated and more, more outreach in that matter? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess it comes back to a lot of the things that we've been talking about as you know, Asians as a model uh, minority. I just wanted to ask if there was anything else anybody wanted to add before we wrap up. When we think about activism and advocacy, we need to reflect on what we want to get out of it. Do you want reform? To what extent? From who? Do you want attention to an issue? Do you want a task force? Do you want to educate the moderate? What do you want? It's a question I pose to myself a lot with my anti-racism activism, and my answer still shifts. So when I listen to Amy and Andrea, I hear this recurring theme of self-realization, of deconstruction, and I think we all need to apply this to the way we approach our advocacy. It reminds me of a quote from a Black uh, lesbian feminist poet, um, Audre Lorde, who said, women of today are still being called upon to stretch across the gap of male ignorance and to educate men as to our existence and our needs. This is an old and primary tool of all oppressors to keep the oppressed occupied with the master's concerns. She goes on to then quote Simone de Beauvoir, who once said, it is in the knowledge of the genuine conditions of our lives that we must draw our strength to live and our reasons for acting. So what are those reasons for acting? And to me, it's, it's this, it's self-acceptance and identity building, it's healing and community. I do think it's necessary to reach across the aisle to foster understanding, but I have found that if your activism is only fueled by that, you will feel tired and scared and angry and just utterly spent. But centering self-acceptance and identity building is really how we move beyond survival mode and claim our voices collectively. Maybe we can just, I can briefly talk about that last point. I think moving forwards, because we have reached a boiling point and I think change is, is, comes from reaching a boiling point. And I really hope that we can integrate communities, racial communities better. And for the white community, you know, the Asian diaspora, we have spent our whole lives being this model minority that has been framed for us, for, for us to step in. And it would be nice now if you stepped in foot into our communities that so that so that you can see us outside of our Asianness, to, to see us as individuals as well in our Asianness, not despite our Asianness. And for the BIPOC community, there's an elephant in the room where we think that POCs cannot be racially discriminatory to others, but we truly are. And I hope that we can reconcile this between the different BIPOCs um, so that we can, you know, be more of an ally to each other. Because if there's no freedom for one group, then there's no freedom for anyone. Thank you so much for sharing those final thoughts with us. And thank you so much for participating in the podcast to Jill, Andrea and Amy. HDRI will be back soon with a new episode and we hope you're staying safe until then.